0: a psalm of David I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods I will sing praises to you I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word above all your name in the day when I cried out you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul all the kings of the earth shall praise you O Lord when they hear the words of your mouth yes they shall sing of the ways of the Lord for great is the glory of the Lord though the Lord is on high yet he regards the lowly but the proud he knows from afar though I walk in the midst of trouble you will revive me you will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me the Lord will perfect that which concerns me your mercy O Lord endures forever Do not forsake the works of your hands. All right, we're in Judges 5. We're in our second sermon. This is uh, verses 6 through 12. It's entitled The Song of Deborah, Part 2. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased, it ceased in Israel, until I, Deborah, arose Arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song, arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. The verses today reveal various truths about interacting with God. We can submit a proposition to help us understand one of them. Suppose there are two people, both of whom are trying to please God. One is a Muslim and the other is a Christian. The Muslim has an internal understanding that he should not have sex outside of marriage. He feels this is correct and he doesn't want to displease God. He just feels it in his bones that doing so isn't right. And it is his intent to make God proud of him by not doing this. The Christian knows from the word that he shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. Before he came to Christ, he never really thought about it, and he did what he wanted in this regard. After coming to Jesus, he heard that what he was doing was wrong, and he gave up on those ways. Both are refraining from sex outside of marriage. However, the Muslim is wasting his time, at least from the perspective of meriting favor with God. The deeds of the Christian, on the other hand, are acceptable and pleasing to God. What is the difference between the two? Our text verse comes from Romans 12. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The answer to the question is given by Paul in these verses from Romans The Muslim has not called on the true God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is not sanctified. And his deeds, even if well-intentioned, are unholy. He is tainted with sin and remains separated from God, even if he does right things. Jesus Christ is the offering that makes man acceptable to God. This is true for Jews and Gentiles. Jews remain unholy. And separate from God if they have not come to him through Jesus all people regardless of religion need what Paul describes as repentance toward God yesterday I got an email from a friend he's an Israeli and he said that uh, he was accused of being like Hamas because he followed Jesus imagine that (laughs) by another Israeli This means changing the mind toward God. Repentance means changing the mind toward God. It isn't something one does outwardly, but inwardly. People who have not called on Jesus believe something about God, even if it means being atheists and denying his existence. To have repentance towards God means to think properly about God, accepting that he is united with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back to himself through his cross. Once that happens, the Holy Spirit makes the person acceptable to God. And the deeds that he does can then, likewise, be acceptable. Jesus is the answer to our greatest need. This truth is to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, until I, Deborah, arose. It's verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Ja'el, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Bime Shamgar ben Anat, Ya'el, orachot, netivot akal kalot. As in the last sermon, each clause will be explained independently. In days Shamgar, son Anat. Here, Deborah gives a time reference for the people to remember by noting a hero within the land. Shamgar, son of Anat, was noted as judge of Israel in Judges 3, verse 31. There it said, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. As noted then, the derivation of his name is uncertain. However, it is likely that this is a reversal of the name of Moses' son Gershom. If so, then it would be from the words Sham meaning there, or Shem, name, and stranger. Hence, his name either means they're a stranger or called a stranger. His father's name, Anat, comes from Anna, a word having four distinct meanings. To answer or respond, be occupied with, to afflict, oppress, or humble, or to sing. Thus, it can mean answer, business, affliction, or singing. Because of the typology, affliction is the meaning here. Next, it says, in days, Ya'el. This is, again, providing a time reference, noting a heroine in the land. This is the same person noted in Judges 4. Ja'el, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who struck Sisera, commander of the army of Jabin. It is at the time of these two heroic people that ceased ways. The orach is a way. It can be a literal way, as in a path, a highway, and so on. Or it can be figurative, as in the manner, meaning the way of women, as in Genesis 18.11. Or it can be the path of life, as is seen in Psalm 16.11. It is derived from arach to wander or journey. Thus, the meaning in this context is that the main means of travel, such as roads and well-traveled paths, have stopped being used. Without directly saying it, it is to be understood that it would be too dangerous to take them because of robbers and bushwhackers. Hence, it is a time of lawlessness and fear, rather than the main roads, it says, and walked paths, walking ways, winding. There are two new words here. The first is nativ. It is a noun signifying a path. For example, it is used in Psalm 119 saying, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my nativ, my path, one of my favorite verses in scripture. The next is rare, akalkal. It signifies crooked or bent, coming from the verb akal, meaning to bend or to twist. The only other use is in Psalm 125, where it is given in a figurative sense, where one's ways are crooked. There it says, as for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, akalkal, the Lord shall lead them away. With the workers of iniquity, peace be upon Israel. In this case, it is referring to taking back roads rather than the main highways. Therefore, winding gets the point while giving an alliterative effect. Out of fear, the people forego the main roads and stick to the winding ways that are more difficult but safer. Taken all together again, Bime Shamgar ben Anat, bimeyael Yael, Chadlu or nativot akal kalot it is an a a b b pattern where an emphasis contrast exists in the b section due to the repetition in the final clause a in days shamgar sananat a in days yael b ceased ways b b and walked past walking ways winding The words tell of the state of life in the time of Shamgar and Jael. Adam Clark pithily sums up the situation saying, the land was full of anarchy and confusion, being everywhere infested with Bandidi. No public road was safe, and in going from place to place, the people were obliged to use unfrequented paths. This tells us that there is overlap in the judging of Shamgar and Deborah, at least in the state of the land in their times of judging. That continued until the battle was engaged by barak and ended with the heroic deed of jael some find the words here impossible to reconcile with the statements that come at the end of ehud's time of judging there it said so moab was subdued that day under the hand of israel and the land had rest for 80 years after him was shamgar the son of anat who killed 600 men of the philistines with an ox goad and he also delivered israel it is assumed that ehud judged There followed 80 years of peace, then Shamgar judged, or he is ignored as not really being a judge in a time of strife that lasted until the time of Deborah. This fails to account for the fact that the rule of judges necessarily overlaps at times. It further fails to consider what it means for the land to have rest. It does not mean that there was complete peace and harmony, but that there was no war. Shamgar fought the Philistines probably at the time of Ehud. After that, War ceased, but the people remained in a state of vexation due to lawlessness. War again took place at the time of Deborah. The sad description of the state of things between these times of war continues with, verse 7, village life ceased, it ceased in Israel, until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. Chadlu pratzon be Yisrael, chadlu ad shakamti devorah. Shakanti m be Yisrael ceased peasantry or magistracy in Israel ceased. Here a word is introduced, the meaning of which is rather uncertain. Pratzon, it is found only here and in verse eleven. It is a masculine singular noun from the same root as prata, an open region or a hamlet, often translated as unwalled villages. That ultimately is derived from a root meaning to separate, as in deciding the chieftain of a village. Therefore, two possible translations are generally decided upon for this word. The first is something like mighty men or rulers. The second is something to do with those in villages. The reason for the variation is based on what it said in the previous verse. There were first mentioned the brave people, Shamgar and Yael. Next, the state of the pass and ways was noted. Therefore, it is either referring to brave people like Shamgar and Yael, or to the state of those living in those villages, who became so frightened that they no longer conducted such simple pastoral life. The next words are simple to translate, but they don't help with the correct meaning of the word Pratzon. Until I arose Deborah. The distressing issue addressed in the first clause is alleviated through the coming of Deborah. However, that issue could still be either of the two possibilities. One, there was no proper local leadership in the land to handle the dire situation until Deborah arose, or two, there was no peaceful pastoral life in the land until Deborah arose. Nobody is certain of that. Either way, I arose mother in Israel. I don't like the translation say a mother. She is mother of Israel at this time. The meaning of this is to be derived from the first words of chapter 4, where it says, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Haroshet HaGoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sold them because of this, as if they were no longer sons. But needing to be led by a parent, they cried out to the Lord for relief from their oppressors. And he sent them Deborah to be as mother to them, bringing them back to a state of sonship through her, his appointed judge. This still does not resolve the actual meaning of the word pratzon. But either way, the effect is the same. Either proper local leadership of the unwalled villages was restored, or the peaceful state of those within the unwalled villages was restored. The result is what matters. That is seen in reviewing the entire verse. Chadlu pratzon be chadlu ad shakamti devora, shakanti m Bey Yisrael. It is an emphatic A-A-B-B pattern where the words ceased and until Provide a contrast. A. A. Ceased peasantry or magistracy in Israel. Ceased. B. Until I arose, Deborah. B. I arose, mother in Israel. The reason for the ceasing is next stated. Verse 8. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel it is singular speaking of israel as an individual elohim chadashim azlachem sha'arim magem im Yeriah varomach elef he chose god's newbies speaking of israel the meaning is clear but it is remarkable how many variations in translation or interpretation there are a few of them and this is just a few of the variations God shall choose a new thing, that's the Peshitta. God chose new leaders, that's the NET. The Lord will choose new things, the Lamasa Bible. The Lord chose new wars, Dewey Reigns. They chose new gods, the Web Bible. They have chosen a new thingy, says Coverdale, when the people chose new gods, the GWT. Cambridge claims that the words yield no certain meaning. The varied translations and seeming confusion are remedied by return to Deuteronomy 32, where the same words were used. There it says, They are sacrificing to the demons, not God. Gods, Elohim, No, they knew. Newbies, Hadashim, from near they came. No, have they dreaded your fathers. That's Deuteronomy 32, 17, the Charlie Garrett version right in the song of moses that explains exactly what the people would do from there it told what the lord would do in return by spurning them hiding his face from them and seeing how things would go for them as for this time in israel's history the result was then war gates it is a noun found only here in scripture Lachem. it is derived from the verb lacham to fight or do battle hence it means conflict or war The meaning is that because of their turning from the Lord, war hems them in at their gates. They had already abandoned their villages, but things only progressively got worse. (coughs) The gates are where rulers gathered to judge the community. With war at the gates, a properly functioning community would break down and chaos would ensue as an interesting side translation and I get the biggest kick out of this kind of thing. This is very interesting to me. It might not mean anything to you, but if you take out the vowel pointing of the Hebrew here, the word translated as war, lachem, is identical to bread, lechem. Further, the word translated as gates, shaarim, without the pointing is spelled like barley, seorim. Hence, some translations say something like then the barley bread. That may sound odd at first, but if combined with the translation of other clauses, it makes complete sense. God shall choose a new thing, and then bread of barley and a sword and a spear will not be seen among 40,000 of Israel. That's the Peshitta. In other words, God turns away from Israel so that there is no bread to eat during the siege and no weapon with which to fight against the attacking enemy. Makes complete sense. That would then match what it later says in isaiah concerning the siege of jerusalem where there was a lack of battle ready men and a lack of food there it says in isaiah 36 but if you say to me we trust in the lord our god is it not he whose high places and whose altars hezekiah has taken away and said to judah and jerusalem you shall worship before this altar now therefore i urge you give a pledge to my master the king of assyria and i will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rav Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew. Actually, it says in Judean. It doesn't say Hebrew. In the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rav Shakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Although the words do match what could be expected of a siege, The rendering of war at the gates, rather than that of barley bread, is the more likely rendering. This is because the subject of the first clause is Israel, not God, as was determined from the words of Deuteronomy 32. With that, the final clause says, shield, if seen, and spear in 40,000 in Israel. The meaning, though debated, is that there were no truly offensive weapons available within any given city. When warfare is waged against a walled city, the natural implements to use would be shields to protect from arrows and spears directed at the foes. It doesn't say there were no swords, and that is just what was used as is described in Chapter 4 in the battle fought by Barak. Swords are used for close-in fighting, but for a siege, unless the walls are breached, they are of no offensive value at all. The number 40,000 not mentioned in chapter 4 is derived from the numbers 4 and 10, or 40 and 10. The meaning of each, as defined by E.W. Bollinger, is 4 is the number of creation. It is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, of material things and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number, and especially the city number. 10 signifies the perfection of divine order completeness of order marking the entire round of anything is therefore the ever-present signification of the number 10. it implies that nothing is wanting that the number and order are perfect and that the whole cycle is complete 40 is the product of five and eight and points to the action of grace the number five leading to and ending in revival and renewal eight This is certainly the case where 40 relates to a period of evident probation. But where it relates to enlarged dominion or to renewed or extended rule, then it does so in virtue of its factors 4 and 10 and in harmony with their signification. That's E.W. Bollinger's analysis. If you compare with what went on in the previous chapter, you'll see that it fits perfectly. Once again, going over the words, Yevhar Elohim Harashim lachem sh'arim magen im varomach it is an a b c pattern where b explains a and c describes the state under b a he chooses gods newbies b then war gates c shield if seen and spear in 40,000 in israel Israel did just what the Song of Moses said they would do. The Lord, in turn, responded just as the Song said would happen. But at the people crying out and Deborah prophesying, things began to change. Awake! Awake to righteousness! Come alive through the power of God in Christ. Without Him, your life will remain a mess. This is how the soul is priced. We can be of no value at all because of sin, or we can become a jewel of infinite worth. Without Jesus, we will be eternally done in, but through calling on him, we receive the new birth. Come to God through the giving of his son. Such a glorious, marvelous thing he has done for us. Through Christ, the battle over sin is won. Thank God for our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. Our second thought today is awake, awake. It's verses 9 through 12. Verse 9, my heart is is with the rulers of Israel, who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. The words are hard to literally translate because verbs are being used as nouns. My heart to inscribers, Israel. Pretty much every translation renders the verb as a noun, such as princes, lawgivers, governors, and so on. But the word is a verb, chakak. It means to cut in, inscribe, and so on. As such, it indicates to make a decree. Figuratively, one could say something like prescribers. The point is that her heart went out to those who decreed the words of her prophecy to the people, to incite them to action. That is exactly the result obtained, as seen in the next clause, the volunteering in the people. Almost all translations render this as a continuation of the previous clause, making the subject the same in both clauses. For example, the New King James Version says, my heart is with the rulers of Israel who offer themselves willingly with the people. This is possible, but the word who had to be inserted. The verb to in the first clause seems to be addressing those described by the verb in each clause. Hence they are addressing two separate categories. She says my heart too." first inscribers Israel and then the volunteering in the people. Everybody see that as in verse two, the word Nadav to incite or impel is used upon hearing the decree of the inscribers. These now being described were internally impelled to act thus they are volunteering among those who heard therefore deborah goes ballistic once again as she did in verse 2 bless Jehovah! at the thought of what has occurred one can see her throwing her arms toward heaven and shouting a proclamation of blessing toward the lord the reason i would make the first two clauses different categories is because this verse is given as a mirror of verse 2 Verse uh, two says, "In freeing freedmen in Israel, in volunteering people, bless Jehovah." And then this one says, "My heart too, inscribers Israel, the volunteering in the people, bless Jehovah. The people were freed." Those who were impelled then volunteered, and Deborah sent forth her blessing of Jehovah. The inscribers made the decree. Those who were so impelled volunteered, and Deborah again sent forth her blessing of Jehovah. As such, the same structure as verse 2 is again seen. A complementary A-B pattern followed by a note of praise. Libi lechoche Yisrael ha-mit nadvim ba'am barahu Yehovah. My heart to inscribers Israel A, and then B, the volunteering in the people, and then the exclamation of praise, bless Jehovah. After verse 5:2, her words followed with a praise from self, I will sing praise. Now she implores the people to speak out, saying, Verse 10: Speak, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road. The New King James Version, following the King James Version, ruins the emphatic nature and highly anticipatory mood of the words. They say, "Rochve atonot tsikorot, yoshve al medin, al derech Riders, donkeys, tawny. The word translated as donkey is aton, a female donkey that comes from the same as etan, perennial ever flowing or permanent. The sense is that of the ever patient nature of the animal being very docile. The adjective described as tawny is found only here in scripture, tzachor. It comes from tsachar, a noun found only in Ezekiel 27, 18, also meaning tawny. It comes from a root signifying to dazzle. Thus they are donkeys that possess a bright coat instead of the typically bland colors of a donkey that a commoner would ride on. The only reason why the word white is used is because the Greek, the Greek translation was translated that way for the benefit of the Roman and Greek audiences that understood white animals as representing nobility, wealth, power, and so on. And that has continued in the English very unfortunately. The words speak of the leaders of the people, whether wealthy, noble, or so on. That thought certainly continues with the next clause sitters upon measures of this clause the geneva bible says ye that dwell by midin instead of sitters upon measures they translate it as a location midin is a city named in joshua 1561 but this is not the meaning first it says upon not by secondly there is no other mention of the name in scripture Now, that, I admit, on my part is a bit of an argument from silence, but Deborah is referring to something that people would understand pertains to wealth or nobility. If Medin was filled with such people, Scripture certainly would have indicated this. Rather, the word Medin is the plural of mad or med. It signifies a measure or an extent, normally of cloth or a garment. A garment is made to the measure of a man. In this case, it is a measured cloth of this cloth, there are two reasonable possibilities. One is the cloth laid upon a donkey like a saddle. It looks good when you're riding on it. The other would be a measured cloth used by people for sitting on as we use cushions today. The quality of the measure would indicate the status of the person from poor to wealthy, or maybe even to indicate a profession like a judge or something. Thus, it could go so far as to be a symbol of authority or judgment. Translating this with the known root, measures, leaves open both possibilities. Either way, the thought runs parallel to that of the previous clause, signifying something that sets these people apart as classy. I would take it to signify someone who sits on a garment in a set location as a sign of wealth. The reason for this is because of the next words, and walkers upon road. This is what people commonly do if they don't have a donkey, or if their donkey is used for carrying a large load. Thus, the verse is referring to three classes of people, riders, sitters, and walkers. Regardless of which person is being referred to, the final word of the verse, a word of strong emphasis, is soliloquize. It is a new verb to scripture, siach. It comes from the noun siach, which means to complain or babble to oneself, to meditate, and so on. To understand more completely, Strong's notes that it is from a primitive root, meaning to ponder. Thus, by implication, it means to consider aloud with oneself. If you see somebody talking to himself, he's pondering, okay? As such, and to provide a word that means exactly that, I have translated it as soliloquize. The exclamation point is provided to indicate the emphatic nature of Deborah's words. In other words, and to paraphrase the verse, you who ride on dazzling donkeys, you sitters upon measures, and you walkers along the road. Think about what I'm telling you and repeat it as a memory tool. It thus forms an AAA pattern accompanied by an emphatic directive. Ruchve atonot Yoshve al-medin, al-derech, Riders, donkeys, tawny, a, a again, sitters upon measures, a again, and walkers upon road, soliloquize. With that, Deborah next says, verse 11, far from the noise of the archers, among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Of this verse, the pulpit commentary states, and I can attest to their words, a very difficult verse and very variously rendered. Mikol mechatzitzim, it's kind of a hard word to say, ben mashabim, sham yitanu tzidkot Yehovah, tzidkot prezono be Yisrael, az yardu lasharim am Yehovah. From voice dividers between troughs. Doesn't make any sense, but I'll explain it. The word from can and often does signify more than. To paraphrase it, we would say above the sound. These people were told to soliloquize. They were told to do so loudly enough to overcome the distraction around them. You're sitting there and you're thinking, you're talking out loud to yourself and there's a lot of noise. You have to talk louder so that you remember what you're thinking. (laughs) The word "chasatz" signifies to divide. Some translations say arrows because of the similar word chetz, meaning an arrow. There's no need to accept this. The next word is found only here in Scripture. Mashav. It comes from Sha'av to draw water thus being plural. It would signify troughs. What is going on at the place of troughs where people draw water? Lots of talk and fun chatter. The dividers are those who are cutting into the thoughts and words of the person who is making the soliloquy. Therefore, the person who was instructed to soliloquize is told to do so above the noisy chatter of the people, there to draw the water. At this place, there they celebrate righteousness Jehovah. Here's another new and rare verb, tana. It is identical to another verb of the same spelling meaning to hire. Both come from a primitive root signifying to attribute honor one hires that which is good in his eyes if you have two cabs and one is a piece of junk and the other is classy and they're the same price you're going to pay for the classy one right that's the idea in the case of this word it means to commemorate but in a positive sense to get the proper idea of what is being said one must go to the only other use in scripture which is judges 11 and it was a custom in israel that the daughters of israel went yearly to celebrate Tana, the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. This soliloquized celebrating is concerning the righteous acts of the Lord. This then must be considered both in his judging and selling off Israel, as well as returning to them upon their crying out to him. With that, Deborah next says, righteousness, his peasantry or magistracy, it's the same word as before, in Israel. Some translations make this out to be an emphatic repeat of the previous verse. Thus, it would be referring to the righteousnesses of the Lord, such as even righteousnesses towards his people. However, that doesn't appear to be the case. Instead, it is referring back to verse 7, where the only other use of the word pratzon is seen in Scripture. Ceased peasantry or magistracy in Israel. Ceased. Until Deborah rose, these people ceased their doings. However, after she arose, verse 9 explained their conduct. So it says, My heart too, A, inscribers Israel, B, the volunteering in the people, bless Jehovah, With the righteousnesses of the Lord brought forth on behalf of the people, the people then performed their own righteousnesses. It is the same thought which is expressed in Revelation 19, where a similar plural noun construct is used. There it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous axe, the <laughs> dikaiomata, literally righteousnesses, of the saints. We're getting a parallel from judges in the book of Revelation. Apart from the Lord, there can be no acts of righteousnesses. Think of the Muslim at the beginning of the sermon. Everybody see that? Only when living in accord with his will can the deeds of the people be considered as righteous. Therefore, no matter what you do apart from Christ, it makes zero difference to God. You're already condemned. John three eighteen. The Continues on, then they shall descend to the gates, people Yehovah. This returns to the words of verse 8, then war gates. The gates are where people go in and out of the city. It is the place of making legal decisions. However, most notably, the gates are the place where judgment is rendered. This doesn't merely mean legal decisions like transferring deeds and obtaining marriage licenses, but where judgment of the moral nature takes place. It is why this is recorded in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21. It's gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, if the gates are open, then how can there be no bad guys coming in? The gates are always open because those who can enter have a not guilty verdict rendered already. As for the people of the Lord and judges, they can safely come to the city without fear. They have been forgiven of their past through the humbling of themselves and calling out to Jehovah. The words form a clause concerning the unlimited mercy of the Lord upon those who call out to him in faith. The verse forms an AABB pattern. Miko me katsitsim ben mashabim sham yitanut tzidkot Yehova tzidkot pruzonu beYisrael Azyardu yardu lasharim am Yehova. A. From voice dividers between troughs. A. There they celebrate righteousnesses Yehovah B. Righteousnesses his peasantry or magistracy in Israel. B. Then they shall descend to the gates people, Yehovah. As complicated as that verse was, and as the pulpit commentary admits, that is what this means. I studied enough where I'm certain you're getting the proper evaluation of it. With that, the verse rushes into a beautiful exclamatory note that forms a bridge between this section and the next. Verse 12, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song, arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Uri, Uri, Devorah, Uri, Uri, Dabrisher. Kum Barak. Ushavay ben Avinom. Awake, awake, Deborah. This takes us back to the second paragraph of the narrative in chapter 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, she is poetically detailing what it was like to receive the revelation from the Lord concerning Israel's coming deliverance. You can see how excited she is with her words. It is as if the Lord is rousing her. Awake, awake, Deborah. With that, he gives her the instruction to prophesy, here called a song. Awake, awake, speak a song. Rather than sing a song, she is told to speak. Though spoken, the words are a song nonetheless. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? The words would be music to the ears. They are words of decision coming from the mouth of the Lord God. Next clause, arise, Barak. This sums up the command of the Lord that was expressed in her next words to Barak. Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun and against you I will deploy Sisera the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the River Kishon next clause and lead captive your captivity son Abinoam this tells us of the victory that lay ahead those who held Israel captive inclusive of Barak your captivity would be led captive it is reflected in the closing words of her initial statement to him Judges 4 7 and I will deliver him into your hand with this bridge between stanzas complete we note the interesting a a followed by a word of instruction and then a B C D C pattern Uri Uri Davora Uri Uri Dabri Shur kumbarak Ushaveh Shevicha ben Avinom. A awake awake Deborah A awake awake and then speak a song and then B C arise Barak and then D C and lead captive your captivity son Abinoam What has been done is that the two C's are divided by two commands Instead of saying arise and lead captive your captivity Barak son of Abinoam she poetically divides them for emphasis As such, it truly forms a song instead of simple prose. The words of Deborah will continue in the next sermon. Until then, we can consider the overall typology in relation to what was seen in chapter four. Deborah typologically anticipates the New Testament. Israel was under law and unable to please God because the law only forms an impossible wall between the two. However, with the coming of the New Testament and the grace of God revealed there, man can once again be restored to complete and total fellowship with God. This has been hinted at in several ways in the passage today. The Lord has brilliantly used real people and real circumstances to show us what he will do in the sending of Jesus. Through him, we become righteous. Because of this, our deeds can now be considered in the same light. God no longer sees our sin. Therefore, the things we do, even if they are exactly the same in nature as what others in the world do, are now acceptable. At the same time, the deeds of those not in Christ cannot be reckoned as acceptable. The difference is not in what is done, but in who makes what is done acceptable, meaning Jesus. The point is that we cannot buy off God with good deeds. Our sin separates us from such a notion. But if you ask somebody why should god let you into heaven what is their answer almost every time i've done something good i'm not as bad as that guy etc 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 that is what separates us from god is that attitude it's i it's the i problem but our good deeds when done in christ can rise to god like acceptable sacrifices. Jesus is what makes all of the difference. Don't try to earn what he gives freely through grace. Accept the gift and then do what is pleasing to God, okay? And how are you going to find out what's pleasing to God? How are you going to find that out? That's it. You're not going to know it any other way. You know, you might have an internal impulse like that Muslim at the beginning that says, I shouldn't be doing this, but You might be completely wrong in your thinking. Sometimes internal impulses are the worst things to rely on. It says in Jeremiah, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yeah, absolutely. How can we cling to ourselves when we've got the word of God right here to tell us what to do? Read this word. Think on this word. Treasure this word. Study it and look for Jesus in this word. I know these Judges chapter 5 sermons are very technical. I understand that. It's a lot of information. All I want you to do for the next two sermons, we'll be done with it. Is just enjoy it, enjoy the poetry which is given. And why would God put this in His Word? So we can understand nuances that have been sitting there for three thousand years, waiting for people to just simply pick it up and enjoy it. Okay, you're not going to know the Word if you're not reading the Word, and you can't enjoy it if you don't spend time learning what is said in the Word. Please read this Word. If you want a good word from the Word, Burke sends them out every day. He does all kinds of things. He picks words and does a study on them. And if you want to be on his email list, just email me and I'll give you his email address and he'll send it out to you as well. He's always got something fun from the Word. But that's a person that's pursuing the Word of God. He wants other people to know what he's discovered. So, do that. But above all, the Word is there to tell us about one major thing. One person, and that's Jesus. There are lots of major subjects in the, in the Bible. We could break it down into a billion different major subjects. But overall, the person of Jesus is what it is telling us about. You need to have a right relationship with him. If you have never believed the simple gospel, and this is it. I said to the people in Bible class on Thursday, if you don't believe exactly as I believe with this, you are going to hell. And Burke looked almost scared. What? <laughs> Listen, I'm going to say it again. This is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. If you don't believe that, you will not go to heaven. By default, you are already going to hell. You must believe the gospel. It's the simplest thing in the world, and yet it's so hard to set aside and say, I'm going to just trust him that he has done everything. He died for your sins, implying you're a sinner. He went into the grave with your sins. He rose again without your sins and without any sin of his own because he would not have come out of the grade if he had his own sin therefore you are saved eternally you are now in Christ live for him as if it's true if you've called on him if you haven't please do so today accept the simple gospel and be reconciled to God our closing verse comes from Romans 12 it's verses 1 and 2 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Next week is Judges 5. It's verses 13 through 23. Everybody will say, ooh, ah, it's so nifty. It's entitled the song of Deborah. Part three. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 15th judge's sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? All right. I got a question. You got to raise your hand because at least two people are going to get this, and I got to see which hand goes up first. Okay. Who told his brothers not to kill Joseph? Joseph. Go ahead. Hey, he got it. Not Judah. Not uh, Benjamin. Reuben. 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 He was the first. Now, Judah's the one that defended him later. Okay, but Reuben is the one that first told him, don't betray your brother. Okay. This is the Pagini Zonda R. This is one fast truck. Put that on your wall, buddy. That is great. That is from, um, uh, who gave that to me? I wrote it down because I had two people send me things on the same day. Um, Oh, yeah, um, uh, the Elfers, Joe and Lisa Elfers sent that. And that's the last of the three. Thank you, Joe and Lisa. Wonderful stuff. Um, Okay, we got a poem, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Good job, buddy. Okay, The Song of Deborah, part two. All I'm going to do is read my translation of these verses In days Shamgar, son Anat, in days Ya'el. Ceased ways and walked paths, walking ways winding. Ceased peasantry or magistracy in Israel, ceased until I arose, Deborah, I arose, mother in Israel. He chooses gods, newbies, then war gates, shield if seen, and spear in 40,000 in Israel. My heart, too, inscribers, Israel, the volunteering in the people. Bless Jehovah. Riders, donkeys white, sitters upon measures and walkers upon road, soliloquize from voice dividers between troughs. There they celebrate righteousnesses, Yehovah, righteousnesses, his peasantry or magistracy in Israel. Then they shall descend to the gates, people, Yehovah, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake. Speak a song. Arise, Barak, and lead captive your captivity, son Avinoam. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown hallelujah we shall sing to you for all of our days hallelujah and amen heavenly father thank you so much for the many blessings of this life thank you that we can be sure 100 percent sure that we are reconciled to you because of the work of another you yourself entered into the stream of humanity and united with human flesh in the person of jesus christ and by simple faith in his completed work we are saved thank you for that Lord, we have missionaries we need to lift up to you. Mentioned a couple of them today, and we have others in countries around the world doing wonderful things. Please be with them, and please help them to uh, have stamina for the race that's set before them, to finish that race with confidence and with glory of you on their hearts and in their minds. Lord, We thank you for all that these people do, and we just pray for them and for strength for them. We pray for the people that were uh, mentioned on Thursday that are uh, in the hospital or that are having difficulties, and we lift them up to you and any others that are out there that I have failingly forgotten to uh, bring up to this church. Forgive me, but please be attentive to their needs. And uh, we thank you for all you've done for us, and we praise you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.